Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question for the two of them as the patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Jonathan, I thought today that we might talk about your new book, Just One Heart, A Cardiologist's Guide to Healing, Health, and Happiness. So let me begin by saying congratulations on its upcoming publication. Thank you so much, Robbie. It's been a labor of love. Started in my mind about 10 years ago, and it's just feeling good to bring it into the world. Jonathan, in the book, you explore seven timeless traits of the human heart. Steadiness, wisdom, openness, wholeness, courage, lightness, and warmth. It sounds a little bit like an unusual list created by a cardiologist. So maybe we can take them <laughs> one at a time, if that's okay with you. Sure. Let's begin with steadiness. Uh, how do you see that relative to the heart? And how do you see that in a broader context? Sure. One of the most common calls I get in the middle of the night on call is from the emergency room for a patient who is usually in bed number A or B, the, the most intense ones, because their heart rhythm is unstable. Their heart rate may be twice normal in a life-threatening rhythm, and we have to make decisions about whether to shock the heart, whether to give a medication. But in those moments, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the family history and where they went to school and what they ate for breakfast. There's a prioritization that has to happen when we're helping heal and stabilize others' hearts. So it's always the first step. And it occurred to me that it's not just the physical heart that needs steadying in our lives. More often as leaders, as healthcare providers, or just as parents or spouses, there's often an unsteadiness in our own hearts so that we come to other people from a place of reactivity rather than generosity and presence and stability. And so the first step is always to steady our hearts. This season of Fixing Healthcare, we're focused on leadership. So I'd like to spill over a little bit in this conversation in Unfiltered and ask you, as a CEO, as a major leader, is invariably massive ups and downs. Terrible things happen, great success is achieved. It's just the nature of a business, an organization, and the leader is obviously there, accountable, responsible, feeling the pressure. Mm. Do you have advice for how individuals can be steady in the face of variations in the world around them? Absolutely. Uh, I understand those pressures and I understand the mantle of responsibility for other people's lives and their well-being. And I approach this in two ways, Robbie. There's the question of what do I do in this moment? I'm about to lead a board meeting. My heart is racing. I'm worried about our finances and the bottom line and how people are going to respond. That's the first situation we have to learn to steady ourselves. And then there's the longer play over weeks and months and over a career, 
how can we create a sense of stability so we're not rocked by the ups and downs of the news cycle or the stock market or what's happening in the industry? So taking the first one first, one of the best ways to steady ourselves in the moment is to get out of our heads. So often, the unsteadiness, the instability, the fear that we experience is because our minds are overactive. We're worried about a possible future outcome that may never happen. We're worried about what other people may think of our judgment. We're busy ruminating about our past decisions when they sh they're really in the past. And so if we can bring ourselves into this moment, actually letting go of the past and future, being the leader that the people need us to be without having our minds race away, we can do that with a simple breath in and out. We can do that by feeling our feet on the ground. We can do that by remembering that there's a body here. It's not just a thinking mind. So there's a lot of practices to steady us, Robbie. The second trait you talk about is wisdom. I usually associate that with the brain. Now you're associating it with the heart. What was behind your thinking and what do you mean by this trait? You're not the only one who associates wisdom with the brain. Since the, uh, after the, the, the Middle Ages and the dawn of the Enlightenment and uh, the wisdom that came from the scholars in Europe and the birth of modern science and modern medicine, of course we identify wisdom with what happens between our ears. And I think that's to our detriment and to our harm. There is a, a sanctification of the human brain and its wonderful abilities to solve all problems in the West but if we read the works of Daniel Kahneman and Adam Grant and think again, uh, we realize that our mind is not as clever as we think it is. And we often give it too much, place too much stock. We have so many cognitive distortions that lead us in the wrong direction. We make mistakes as leaders, as healthcare providers, because we over-index the wisdom of the mind. And so what I mean by the wisdom of the heart, and this isn't me, this goes back thousands of years. If you look at every single religion on the planet, every wisdom tradition, they didn't talk about how smart the brain could be. They talked about the wisdom of the compassionate, empathic, and caring, generous heart. And so that's what I mean by the wisdom of the heart are these aspects of our human experience that are more about caring and serving others. As doctors, we go to medical school and engage in residency to become wiser, be able to be able to think about problems and resolve them in a better way. Given your expanded definition of wisdom, how do you see medical training needing to change in the future to make sure we have the wisest doctors and the best leaders for American healthcare? I love that question. And it, it has to start with early education day one of our medical students. And I think it starts by acknowledging that there's an experience in our lives as medical students, whether we're dating someone, whether we're dealing with anxiety or depression as I was, there are so many matters of the heart and our emotional lives that we're told to throw out the window as soon as we walk into our first day of neuroanatomy class. And I think that we lose out on the richness of the wisdom of our heart and our body. So it really, Robbie, is a matter of reminding ourselves that if we really wanna heal other people or help other people heal, which is supposedly what we're doing here, it can't happen only in the thinking mind. And the thinking mind is critically important. It can't only happen there. We have to invite students and residents to bring some of their emotional lives into work. And I don't mean 
venting frustrations. I don't bring, mean bringing marital problems to work. What I mean is speaking about our lives uh, in a sense of wholeness, bringing our emotional lives to work, and bringing some joy and lightness into work instead of having it only be about study and memorization and tasks. So let's move on to the third of the seven traits, openness. What do you mean by this? How does it apply to the heart? And how do we translate that into healthcare and into leadership of medical organizations? I've heard so many people describe people that they admire as saying, such an open-hearted person, just very open-hearted. And I thought, well, what the heck does that mean? So I think what we mean, and if you look at the psychological literature, there are five core personality traits, and one of them is openness. And so when I was researching what openness means and how it applies to leadership, what I discovered is that we all have this natural tendency to believe that we know more than other people, to believe that we are better at some skill than other people. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it's just part of our wiring. It's not our fault. And this naturally leads us to have a sense of hubris or egotism about how smart we are. And in a sense, we come into our uh, corporate environment, our leadership spaces, if we're honest, believing that we know more than others and our opinions matter more. So openness is meant to be a corrective against that as a reminder of if we want to move towards that wisdom that we were speaking about, we have to bring humility. And uh, philosophers would call it epistemic humility, which just means I have to say, I don't know what I don't know for me to learn and become wiser. So openness means being open to new ideas that other people have, someone in the back of the room, somebody who's cleaning the hallway, somebody who's replacing the printer cartridge, being open to the information that's around us and not thinking that we know everything there is. It, it goes back to Socrates, who on his deathbed, he said, I know one thing, which is that I, there's a lot that I don't know. So openness begins with humility. And the last thing about openness is I'm not just talking about being receptive to other people's ideas, thoughts, and emotions. Openness means being willing to share. It's a two-way street. So can we be open enough with our own experience to share with others and to show up as authentic leaders. That's what really moves other people. It's when we are open to sharing and it becomes a two-way street. And that's true in any single relationship, not just leaders. As I listen to you describe openness, the thought that comes into my mind is teams, or at least the word is teams, and the contribution of all the members of a team. Traditionally in medicine, that was not how Physicians saw themselves. They were going to be the Lone Ranger riding out. Maybe there'd be a herd of deputies behind them. But this was not a group effort with everyone sharing the credit and taking the position mm. um, at the top of the hierarchy, if you want to think about it in a relational type way. Uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to move to team-based care in the future? Given this, how can we become more open? It starts with recognizing that the old model that you just described is causing a lot of discomfort uh, and uncertainty on the part of leaders and even physicians. You know, in a sense, physicians who believe that, what you just said, that old model of sort of command and control, top down, I'm the boss, everyone here is here to serve me. 
first I want to say, Robbie, that that's how I approached my practice for the first 10 years, and I'm not proud of that. And the people I worked with will tell you that I was, I may have been nice and on the inside, but I was kind of a jerk on the outside because I didn't have a team approach. I thought it was all about me. And I can tell you that the way that the change will happen that you're asking about is when doctors and leaders start asking, why is this so hard for me? Why am I struggling? Why do I feel alone? How come people don't either like me or respect me? And how come I find myself in a new job every couple of years? Once we look for the answers there, we find out that the only solution is to open ourselves up to the people around us and to stop seeing ourselves as the commander of everyone else and instead become a servant who's really here to make everyone else's life a little bit better and to help not just our patients heal, but to remember that the people on our teams are suffering too and allow them to share their humanity and try to help them in a small or large way as a coach. I can understand why from the perspective of individual psychological well-being, that makes total sense. How do you put it into today's economics of medical care? In terms of uh, the openness, when I think about the, the current economics, there's a market uh, at play and patients have to decide who they're going to seek care from. As we have this agglomeration of systems into larger and larger systems, the competition is becoming more fierce for uh, patients to decide who they're gonna go to. And I, I firmly believe that at the end of the day, patients will choose systems of care where there is a sense of teamwork. It's not a matter of, I'm going to this system because they have the best surgeon. I'm gonna to go to this system because they have the best cardiologist. Those days are over. Uh, I think of my own experience and the experience I wanna create for my patients so that when they walk out the door, they'll tell their friends and family, I didn't see a great doctor today. I experienced a great team in that office of 40 people from the front desk through the physician all the way through the time he walked me out to the back desk. Um, it's a matter of appealing to what patients really need, which is a sense of belonging. And uh, that begins with openness and teamwork. As you know, I am a big proponent of capitation as being a superior method to provide care than fee-for-service. And underlying that is the requirement to put together large groups of physicians, large teams with other clinicians. This is a requirement in order to be able to meet the needs of patients on a very consistent basis. When I talk to doctors, they have trouble getting colleagues to join them and to create such a team being willing then to take the risk to provide the care in the most effective and superior quality outcome methodology. Mm. How would you advise individuals who want to lead this process and create greater openness in the medical profession to do so? Well, this is where a little bit of tough love has to come into play. And I think there's also an intergenerational factor. So by tough love, I mean that as leaders, if we really believe that a team-based model of care is the most effective for our patients, we make that clear for all potential employees in our organization. Anyone who wants to join us from onboarding day one, and even going back to medical school day one, we're teaching people are healers, that there's a new way of healing in town. So number one is saying, you are welcome to be part of our team if you commit to being part of a team. And the second is, there are some physicians who are 30, 40 years into their career, they may not be eager to change and that's okay. 
That's a decision we all have. We may want to practice by the old model of, as you called it, kind of the Lone Ranger model. And I think that those days are numbered, and I'm not as concerned about them. I think time will take care of some of that. The fourth trait is wholeness. What do you mean by wholeness? Wholeness is really uh, the essence of healing, Robbie. We're supposedly in the business of health care, uh, but it, it feels more like a business sometimes and less like the practice of healing and health. And if you look up the word health, it comes from the origin meaning whole. That's what health is. And that doesn't mean that I have a body with four limbs. It doesn't mean that I have a heart that's necessarily at full capacity. It really talks about uh, our belief, about our sense of uh, spiritual wholeness, social wholeness, emotional wholeness, as opposed to the standard way that healthcare and doctors would label patients as, how are you broken? You come to see me in the clinic, Robbie, and my first attention in the past would be, you know, your cholesterol is a little out of whack. That's a problem. We're going to focus on that. In a sense, the message that I'm sending to you is there's something wrong with you. And that's communicated in large and small ways. And so wholeness, Robbie, is flipping the script entirely about the way we encounter our patients. And instead of seeking out what's broken and wrong about us, like Sigmund Freud did in the world of psychology, he, he thought that the best purpose of psychotherapy was to help people go from absolute misery to sheer unhappiness. And he wrote that. So instead, wholeness now is a new way of practicing healthcare, which is viewing the strengths in all of us, uh, seeing the patients and the colleagues in front of us in terms of how they are like us and in their good qualities and in helping each other become the best versions of ourselves. As a cardiologist, you take care of many patients with heart failure, and you prescribe a range of medications for them. When it comes to wholeness at the human level, for the clinician level, how do you see the medications that we need to give people to help them heal? I think, first of all, medications that we have today are wonderful for heart failure, and uh, there's a new kid on the block every year. Thank goodness we're prolonging lives, we're reducing hospital stays, and we're preventing readmissions with medications. And we're really missing the boat here. We're really missing the boat because in order for us to prevent this epidemic of heart failure in this country, physical heart failure, we have to look at the epidemic of emotional and social heart failure. And what I mean by that is if you look at any statistic, whether it's anxiety, depression, isolation, according to the Surgeon General's report last month, loneliness, or a sense of being spiritually bereft and not having a sense of personal meaning beyond ourselves, those are on the rise. And we can talk either now or another time, there are scientific mechanisms by which those aspects of our heart, which are aching and breaking and suffering, create physical heart failure. They lead us to eat unhealthy foods, more salty foods. They lead us to take the easy path of a sedentary day watching Netflix instead of going to exercise. They lead us to close off into ourselves because of fear instead of reaching out and joining a community. So uh, that's the other medication that's missing from the equation of our healthcare system, which is why I and so many of our colleagues, Robbie, around the world who see the wisdom of just one heart begin the visit not by saying, do you need refills, but instead a warm look, a warm touch, 
a question about how are you deeply feeling? How's your family? How is your sense of wholeness in your life? And being interested in the person before being interested in the beating heart. You are one of the world's experts on burnout. You run one of the best conferences that I've ever attended. How do you see for the physician who is burned out and doesn't have wholeness, the next steps to acquiring it? A decision begins with a decision, a decision to take full responsibility and ownership for where we are in this moment. And what I don't mean there is that a physician should say, I'm struggling because I'm overbooked and triple booked and I've got an inbox with 150 messages and I'm on call every third night. I'm not saying that we shouldn't fix the systemic problems. But what I am saying is if a physician is feeling that they're just worn down, they're cynical, they start to view patients not as human beings anymore, but just as boxes to check to get through the end of the day, which is how I used to practice. I think it's time for that physician to pause and not to pause to blame or to yell or to lash out, but just to pause to ask a deep question, which is, is this the life that I deserve? And I'm not going to share all the answers to how we find wholeness in our lives, because the answer is different for each one of us, Robbie, but it has to begin with that question. Is this the life that I deserve? Is this the life that my family deserves? And how effective has my approach been this far to blame and lash out in rage against a broken system, which needs to be fixed? And that's why we're talking today, because I believe that when individual physicians work on restoring their own wholeness, the system doesn't even have to change. My healthcare system didn't change. I spent 10 years filling my own heart, the places of lack from my childhood, from my medical training, from prior traumas. I spent time doing that for myself and I can show up differently now in the same exact healthcare system, now being in a place to help lead the change that I was complaining about before. Let's move on to the next trait, which is courage. Courage comes from the Latin root, which means cur, which is heart. So if Romans almost 3000 years ago knew that courage came from the heart, can we look to the heart today as a source of courage? And there are many aspects of courage. I think at least the people that I help, uh, 38,000 team members in my own organization, a lot of them are struggling because of a lack of basic uh, self-trust and a courage to say, this is not exactly how I want my life to be. It takes a lot of courage to buck the system. That this is why I love your work, Robbie. This is why I love your books, because what you do in speaking out, which is often for justice and equity, for care for everybody, it takes a lot of courage because you're saying something that other people are likely going to criticize you for. And I'm willing to bet that you've taken your fair share of slings and arrows, and I've certainly taken some too, because in order for me to find my own wholeness, I've had to say to, to leaders, many leaders, I can't do, do it this way. I will not do it this way. In fact, I'm going to leave this system if things don't change. And there's the risk in that. There's a risk of livelihood. There's a risk of reputation. And for me to share about my own personal stories of anxiety and depression and burnout in an open way, it does take courage. I know that there are risks involved. 
If I report that on my medical license application, there's a risk that the medical board is going to make it hard for me to renew my license as a cardiologist. That takes courage. It means that I'm afraid of things and I'm deciding that I'm going to pursue them anyway because the end result is that important. Let me dive a little deeper. I understand everything you're saying and it's easy for people who have, I'll say that, courage to tell others to have it. But I also know how painful fear can be, anxiety can be, uh, external threats, realities of economics. Can you offer, I'll say, more advice as people feel that fear as to how they can get past it in mm. order to be able to gain the courage that you believe is so important? Absolutely. Uh, the way that these seven traits are structured, they're very intentional because they are sequential. And it doesn't mean you have to do them in order, but if you've done the work in the prior uh, aspects of the heart, which means around wisdom and around wholeness, we've already dealt with the basic fear and sense of scarcity and a sense of feeling that there are threats all around us that create a paralysis so that we don't have courage. So how do we become a more courageous? It begins with trusting ourselves. It doesn't mean believing all of a sudden that the world is going to bend to our will. It doesn't mean that the healthcare system is going to change in our favor and we should then take courage. It means that we have no idea. We have no idea whether things are going to work out the way we want them to. And we're clear enough in what's important in our life, what our values are, that we have no choice but to take the next step. And so the root of courage is really in wisdom. And it's a really in also in restoring our own sense of wholeness that we talked about. You know, so many people, Robbie, about 40% of people in this country have had some adverse childhood event, whether it was trauma, neglect, abuse, uh, non-attention, lack of emotional nurturing, whatever it is. And so we have people walking around who were taught from a very young age that there's something wrong with you, that I don't like you. And the extension there is we believe that the world is an unfriendly and an unkind place. And of course, if we carry that core belief, we're going to be afraid to take any step outside of our comfortable boundaries. So courage begins with finding that wholeness inside of ourselves, remembering the wisdom that we can't control what happens in the economy. We can't control what happens in the healthcare system, but we do have some control over deciding what's important to us and what our steps will be today to move in the direction of our values, as opposed to just running from our fears. At the other extreme, how could people be sure that they're not moving from courage to foolishness? Hmm. This, comes back, <laughs> this comes back to wisdom, uh, at which we didn't really talk a lot about that. So foolishness means we've lost that sense of uh, what wisdom uh, will tell us to do. So what strategy should we have about the future means we have to be able to always set an intention for our actions. So when we practice setting intentions each day, we're never acting foolishly. Now, foolishness means acting in a wanton, sort of uncaring, unthoughtful way. So one remedy against what you're saying is each and every day when we get out of bed or before each board meeting, before we start asking ourselves, what is my intended outcome from this meeting? And doctors can say that when we, well, I say that before every patient, what is my intended outcome? And I think when we tap into that intention and remember that, 
I think foolishness uh, takes care of itself. And I also think that in order to prevent foolishness, we have to be humble and we have to be open to the voices of others. So if, if I'm about to make a big decision, Robbie, and I don't remember to text you or to call you and say, hey, what do you think about this? Um, I may do something foolish. And so I have to have the humility, which is part of wisdom to say, I need to ask people with more experience than me before I step forward here, even though everyone thinks I have all the answers. Let's move on to number six. And when I think about the human beating heart, again, it doesn't seem to be aligned with the sixth trait, which is lightness. How does the heart and lightness come together? One of the most common problems that I see, and this is an epidemic in our country, you referred to heart failure, Robbie. And as you know, the number one cause of heart failure is untreated hypertension, untreated diabetes, et cetera. And if you take out the physical heart of somebody whose heart is failing from one of those causes, what you know is that that heart on the scale is literally heavier than a healthy heart that has taken care to exercise, to eat right, to have good relationships, to practice stress management each and every day. So healthy hearts, Robbie, are literally lighter hearts to some degree. That's on the literal sense. On the figurative sense, all we have to do is look at the burgeoning science of positive psychology, which goes back to 1998. Well, before then, from Abraham Maslow, an American psychologist from the 50s. But if we look at the president of the American Psychological Association, Martin Seligman, in 98, he said, we're so focused on the negativity uh, of focusing on mental diseases and emotional distress. Let's turn it around. What happens if instead we focus on how can we create a sense of lightness, of joy, of fulfillment, of optimism, and of what psychologist Barbara Fredrickson calls the 10 positive emotions. We don't have enough positive emotions in our lives, Robbie. And the science now is, is there, which shows the intersection of positive psychology, which is the science of feeling good, and cardiology. In fact, the American Heart Association released a paper on the role of emotions on heart health. And it's as clear as clear can be, but we're not recognizing that in our clinics. And so I try to leverage that with each and every patient. And I'm not saying that a, on a deathbed, I'm going to come in and try and crack a joke. That's not what I'm saying. But the majority of the time, our patients are coming to us desperately in need for a sense of lightness in their lives. And we can be a, a, bur a, a place where they can unburden themselves. We can help people let go of the stresses that they're carrying, create an emotional lightness, which then shifts the health-related behaviors of that individual so that their physical heart will not be weighed down by the burden of hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. You mentioned earlier the work of Kahneman and other behavioral ec economists, and we know that the human, I'll call it the human mind, experiences loss far more powerfully in a negative way than the positive of gain. Hmm. How do you see people who are today stuck in this heaviness, in this sense of loss that they maybe made a bad choice become, by becoming a physician mm. or a nurse in the first place, coming into medicine. How do you see them being able to give up that sensation of um, what mm. all they don't have mm. and to embrace the positives 
that they probably started with at the beginning of their career? You're hitting on two critical pieces of the question of how do we live a happy life so that when we look back and uh, people are gathered around our tombstone, they say that was a person who lived well. And the first one is recognizing that we're not wired to be happy people. We're just not. And I know some happy people. Um, we're wired for survival. That's why we're here after millions of years. And the reason that we survive so well as a species is because we are finely tuned to detect threats and to practice avoidance of threat. That comes before the pursuit of resources, before the pursuit of joy and fulfillment. And so that's that negativity bias that you alluded to. And the second piece of the question is, well, how do we let go of the burdens of the past, whether it's grief, whether it's shame over our past behaviors or uh, rumination over our decisions to, to do certain things? Um, I, I think in order to do that, we first have to be comfortable with pain. And I know it sounds bad, but I'm not going to tell you that the answer to letting go of past discomfort is just to let it go and sweep it under the rug. In fact, we know that doesn't work. And yet that's the approach that most people that I've worked with take. Just sweep it under the rug and move on. And so if we really want to have a sense of lightness in our lives, if we really want to let go or let our past be as it was, we have to look at it and just acknowledge how painful it is and how it feels to have lost someone we love or to have made mistakes in our life and to bring a sense of deep self-compassion. Now, as if we're treating ourselves like a small child or our best friend, we wouldn't say, you stupid person, you made a mistake, how could you? But that creates more of a burden. And yet that's exactly what many of us do our whole lives. We criticize ourselves for our past mistakes instead of forgiving ourselves and allowing ourselves that lightness to move on. I can imagine some listeners uh, hearing your words, knowing that optimism has been shown to be a major predictor and creator of success going forward. But that doesn't seem to be who they are. That's the way they were as a child. They've been pessimistic their whole life, and life has often confirmed their <laughs> doubts. What can you offer to them? I'll bring up a simple phrase, Robbie, that, that I'm willing to bet those individuals that you're speaking about, because I was one of them, uh, have heard many times, which is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You, you just can't. You know, and you hear it all that I hear it all the time. People say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm just, I'm just kind of pessimistic. In fact, I'm a bit cynical and I'm a realist. And what we now know is that that's garbage. I'm just going to say it frankly, it's, it's garbage. There's a field called neuroplasticity, or at least it's a principle of neuroscience that has been explored since the 70s and 80s, which is really, sounds fancy, but it's so common sense, which is if you want to learn to be different or to do something differently, whether it's to play the violin, to, to do a surgery on a cleft palate, or to be somebody who's less pessimistic, you're nerves can literally be trained to change, but you have to decide that it's possible. And the science of neuroplasticity and also the new field of epigenetics for the last 40 years says that this idea that, well, I was born that way and my father was a pessimist, so therefore I'm a pessimist. Can you imagine someone comes to you uh, saying, well, my dad had a heart attack at 50 and so there's nothing I can do about it? Of course we wouldn't say that because we know it's not true. And it really has to begin, Robbie, that path from pessimism to a sense of more optimism about life 
with just a simple shift in belief that it is possible to change. The last trait is one everyone associates with the heart, both metaphorically and physically, warmth. Tell us about it. Warmth is the pinnacle. Everything else is really just sort of window dressing <laughs> in a way. Uh, but I realized that so many uh, people, you know, online and leaders, etc., say, well, you should lead with your heart and you should be more empathic and be more kind. And kind of getting back to your last question to me, that's great for people who are already there, but it's not great for the rest of us who feel kind of cold inside and we feel burned out and we feel cynical and we feel kind of hopeless. How am I supposed to get to warmth? And so I've sort of built these seven traits around these ancient principles eventually to get to the one that's at the literal center of every religious and wisdom tradition, which is to live well, which means to feel good about our own lives and to serve others and to make the world a better place. There's one core set of values and beliefs that we have to have, which is the belief that I belong here in this world, that you and I are deeply connected, we share one heart, and that I was born with a natural empathy for you and your suffering and how to alleviate your suffering. And whether it's lessons from our childhood or from our culture, we've unlearned those core essential elements of what it means to be a human being. You and I have talked before about AI and will AI re replace humans and human empathy? And the answer is no, because there's this essential piece of feeling warmth in our hearts, which is around kindness, generosity, respect, uh, compassion and love that a, a robot or an AI will never feel and never be able to communicate as a human will. I've read something that you've written that said that each trait enhances our well-being and strengthens our heart physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. You've given people seven different things to do, each one of which is difficult. If they only can do half of them, how much difference will that make? If, if someone could take away one practice from any one of these traits and decided that they would want to develop that, I, it would make all the difference in the world. If, if you look at every behavioral scientist today, Robbie, and you know that it's a billion dollar industry, how to improve ourselves, you know, whether you're talking about James Clear and Atomic Habits or Tiny Habits, etc. by BJ Fogg, they all say the same thing, which is, we don't change our lives by changing everything at once. We don't stop smoking and run a marathon and you know go to uh, church or synagogue all of a sudden. We start by taking the tiniest step we can just today, and then we naturally see these positive emotions come in, whether it's a sense of pride at ourselves for having the courage to take a, a new direction. And that has a snowballing effect which amplifies and it makes us in a better position to develop the other traits. So it makes all the difference to simply take one step. I love it. It's a great inspiration and every listener should be able, having heard Jonathan, to take that step. Let me turn it back to Jeremy to ask the question, however, from the perspective of the patient. Yeah, as you're talking about the heart and, you know, a lot of these other issues, one of the things that I think is a phenomena that, you know, really kind of uh, blew up during the pandemic of people working remotely and people who might just wake up, stay in their pajamas all day, you know, work in front of a computer, maybe just kind of microwave something, but they don't really do the 
go out of the house, even like the walk to the car, the walk to the office, the walk around the office, that little bit of social um, interaction at work, maybe happy hour with coworkers occasionally after work. And, you know, if you have somebody who's either, you know, single or maybe married with kids or whatever, there's that sense of it's so easy to, and I've seen it happen to quite a few people to fall into that trap of just never leaving the house, you know, and I can get groceries delivered, I can grub hub, but then that builds on that loneliness, that isolation. And it's so much easier for a lot of these people that I've seen to fall into that trap of, I'm not going to run today, or I'm not going to, you know, put on makeup, or I'm not going to get dressed. I just want to stay in my pajamas. I don't want to go for a walk. And then that kind of builds on that sense of isolation, depression, loneliness, all that stuff. Uh, you know, what do you see as someone who's in one of these situations and has fallen into that trap as how do they get out of it? I think with these people I've talked to who are in this situation, they just feel the sense of hopelessness of, yeah, I mean, I don't got to leave the house anyway. It's just easier to stay home. Like, how do you, you know, like you talked about the baby step things, but what advice would you have for people in this situation who it's just so much easier to stay home and not leave the house and not have that social interaction or exercise or anything like that? How, how do you like what would you what advice would you give to those people? Well, any advice has to come from some something that's worked for me and something that I found to be helpful when I was, uh, and I, it still happens, Jeremy, I'm going to just tell you that there are days when I don't want to get out of bed and I'm, I don't want to go to the gym like yesterday at six in the morning. I did not want to go. And uh, it's always easier to stay on the path that we are, especially when that hopelessness comes. Um, I, I think what I would offer is that the answer is not to go out and from a position of being on your couch, watching Netflix, eating ice cream all day to suddenly being the life of the party. I think the answer has to start with how we talk to ourselves. And it also has to take some courage to acknowledge the, the suffering and the pain that we're having. And you said, well, people talk about how hopeless they are, but I think more often in my experience, people don't express it as a sense of hopelessness. It's often, um, a sense of not even caring anymore. And so the answer that I would give is extending ourselves a sense of compassion of how hard things are. Uh, it's hard to be stuck at home. It's hard to you know, not have enough money to pay all the bills or necessarily to buy all of our medications. Um, it's hard to be judged by others in our workplace. There's, there's a place of self-compassion there. So before getting out of the bed or before not getting out of the bed, can we stop not pick up our cell phones, which are just gonna make things worse and make us feel worse about ourselves. Can we in ex instead extend a little bit of care, deep care to ourselves and say, these have been a hard couple of years. There's no way around that. They just kind of really were miserable in some ways. And recognizing in wisdom that that's sometimes how life is. There are ups and there are downs, but never losing hope that things can get better, which gets back to that lightness again. And I'll leave, I'll leave you with this, that Martin Seligman answered the question that you had, which is when someone is stuck in a sense of hopelessness or fear or that things will never get better, they're often falling victim to one of three cognitive distortions. In other words, the person that you're talking about often believes something that they don't even realize they're believing. And so it has to start with a challenge. So the first belief is that they think that the problem that they're having is personal to them. That, that it's their fault somehow, that they're not doing well, that their knee isn't feeling good, whatever it is, um, and that it's personal to them that in a sense that they have it worse than everybody else. 
They forget that there's someone across the street who's suffering in exactly the same way, and they never bother to go out the front door and see that person and make that connection. So, so the response to that is, can we go beyond ourselves and realize that none of this suffering is personal to us? Um, the second is, when we're, we're feeling stuck and we're feeling hopeless, there's a natural tendency of the mind to extend that belief towards everything in our lives. And instead of saying, now this has been a really hard week, what do we do? We say, this is, this is a really hard life. This is a hard life that I have. And the more we repeat that, the more we believe it, that it's not just uh, moments in time that are challenging. We start to believe that it's, we're cursed in a way. And that's, that's not a truth. That's a distortion of the human thinking mind, which is vulnerable and it's frail and it's inaccurate a lot. So that's that humility that comes in to question our own beliefs. And the last is this, this third distortion that when we're feeling stuck and hopeless and we don't want to get out of bed is we think, you know, this isn't just extending to all parts of our life right now, but this is extending in from now until the end of our life. So this is a permanent problem. Uh, we, we tend to predict a future that is never uh, going to change. And that's simply, uh, again, a distortion of the human thinking mind, which is imperfect. We've got it wrong. We have no idea whether things will get better tomorrow, but they certainly are more likely to if we decide to make one small change today. I love your question, Jeremy, because I don't believe we've paid enough attention during the pandemic and now in the post-pandemic world of ours to the problems that were created and that they were not temporary. They were long-term. I think about it at the time when I broke my leg and couldn't exercise for several months, how hard it was to begin again, how far you can fall. Hmm. You've pointed out in COVID, everything Jonathan has outlined was broken. There was no steadiness. Day after day, new crises came about, a lack of wisdom. We didn't really know what was causing it. We didn't know how to prevent it. There was no openness. We were shuttered into our buildings, into our homes, isolated from friends. There was no wholeness. There was no community. There wasn't even a family. You couldn't see them at the holiday times. Courage was challenged because so many people were dying and we had tremendous fear. Lightness was the antithesis of what existed in the moment. And warmth only comes through people. And again, the lack of individuals in our lives who had been there before, but got shut out for years, it's hard to bring them back in, particularly in the way that it was before. I think Jonathan's book is a great prescription for how people are feeling during this time it's just one heart, but it is our heart. And through the heart, I do believe that we can regain what we had before if we try, beginning, as Jonathan said, with a single step at, the at a time, increasing progressively, valuing our progress, and committing to doing even more, even better, even more for ourselves and those we love, I think that his book is coming out at exactly the right time as we try to heal from the great pandemic of our time. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. 
Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com or visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.